0: I love this story, and not just because it's a story about fishing, though uh, I love a good fish story, and generally when, uh, when I go fishing, I tend to exaggerate and talk about how many fish I've caught and how I am caught the biggest fish, and we, as growing up, we fished all the time, and it was always a competition, and I pretty much always won, so uh, I love a good fish story, and we're going to get to that, but I love this story for another reason, and, and, and I think maybe this is the bigger reason, because it is a story of somebody being restored. And as we go to the Scriptures, and as we tell the story of Scripture, and as we tell the story of God's work in us, I think it, at the heart of it, it's always somehow going to be that. If God's at work, there's, there's always going to be some element of it being a restoration story. And that's because we all need... Restoration. We all need healing. We all need help. We all get to a place where we kind of get stuck and we don't know how to get out. And so our vision as a church, our language says this, that we dream of being a life-giving community of growth where hurts are healed and where faith is restored and where people become fully alive. Now, we're going to talk about today how that happens uh, in us and through, through a story of one, one of our people and in Scripture and and really to gather around that hope for us and for our world, I have to tell you that it it, it's, um, it takes more than maybe you might think uh, to do restoring work. It costs more. Uh, anybody who has done a home renovation will know that it takes more money, more time. I've I, I've uh, done restoration projects at our previous, two houses ago, uh, b- big projects, and kind of figured out how to do it myself. There was one point where I was holding two electrical wires, wondering how to bring them together. I called my friend, a church who's an electrician, he said, don't move, don't do anything else, I'll be right there. It can be dangerous to start tearing things apart, to pulling, p- pulling stuff apart, and then trying to put it back together. Uh, and then, in the faith restoration work, it's sort of like uh, in, in home restoration, once you kind of do this thing, then all of a sudden this thing that you thought was okay, you know, kind of has to get worked on, and then, then you got to do this, and it starts to flow from one thing to another, um, and it takes a lot more time than may be expected. You kind of kind of have to get, get into it and see what happens. And and that time is is maybe frustrating because there's not a timeline to it. I flipped a house once and thought it would take six weeks. It took six months. And there was blood, my blood, in every one of those rooms. Faith restoration work is that way. And I'm just going to warn you as we get going, we'd rather it not be. We'd rather it not be that way. Just want to let you know that it is and that it's okay that it it takes it it takes something from us it takes energy it takes time it takes work and it maybe can come when we don't expect it and we maybe don't feel like we have time and we don't have energy and we don't know how to put in the work i want to tell you a story today of hope that that restoration is possible and that faith restoration is possible and that is meaningful I want to start with a story that is that hope. Uh, Several years ago, we did a series uh, in here uh, called Pieces, When Broken Becomes Beautiful. And we uh, started that series uh, each, uh, there were four weeks, the first uh, Sunday of that series, everybody was given a broken piece of of pottery when they came in. How many of you were here for that series remember that day? A good number of you. And uh, we had you at the end end of the sermon right on that piece of pottery, on the back, uh, a a place where you needed to be put back together. And so that was a four-week series. The fourth week, we revealed that we turned all of our broken pieces of pottery into a mosaic. And that mosaic hangs right outside those doors. If you're in the right angle, you can see it through the window over there. It's pretty big. uh, And it has a path uh, winding through. Uh, And and I'm going to show you the image here again because one of our people felt that image and that metaphor was so powerful that they used it to write a book and tell their own story and named their book. Uh, This is Trudy Hardin, who usually goes to our 11 o'clock service. uh, Named her book after that series and uh, used the image on the front that Debbie Bard had put together and then used that to tell her story. And her story is a story of God's restoring work in her life. Which is a pretty cool thing, isn't it? Um, let me take it a step further. Trudy felt like to be truly restorative, then the, the book itself needed to have a sense of mission. And so she decided that she would give any proceeds that she got from the book uh, to the Foundry and, and made that the, the recipient of, of, of her profits. And we have, we've had a, a, a long-standing partnership with the Foundry Community Center. Uh, This week we had a panel on last Wednesday, uh, a panel share uh, about what was going on in the community and one of the folks who shared was Dr. Terry Daniels, who's at the the Foundry, the executive director, and he mentioned that we have 78 children in our preschool at the the Foundry, 3 and 4 year olds, in partnerships with both uh, city and county schools and that the, the schools are saying we need more space for preschool can the foundry partner with us and the goal is to be able to create space for that and the hope is that we would add now get this because I want to tell you a story about abundance here in a second uh, 350 more preschool students to the ones we already serve at the foundry what I want to sow today is seeds of hope in the faith restoration process because it can feel so hard. And, it, and at the individual level and at the community level, it can feel like more than we want to do. I'm just, I'm just going to say that. And, and yet, the, on the other side, down the road, abundance. More possibility. Um, paths forward that we didn't think were possible, both individually and together. Okay, so uh, let's talk for a second about why faith needs to be restored. And maybe you're, uh, you're in this category. I'm sitting down for no other reason than just so that you would um, Sort of feel like I was talking to you there for a second. I'm going to change here because not, I, I don't, my feet are giving me a, a little bit of trouble, but that's not the main reason. I wanted, to, I wanted you to hear that because I think it's important. And I want to shift for a second and talk about why we're even talking about it. Why do you think faith needs to be restored? Why, why is this even a thing? And over the years, I feel like there are um, some themes that have come up as we've been doing this work together. Uh, and it is challenging work. Uh, but what I see in people... Uh, and so let's think about the reasons. Three categories of faith crisis. The first is this, what we might call theological. Meaning that people find that there is a disconnect between uh, their life circumstances and their faith answers. And I think this is kind of the hardest, because how, how, when you start... You know, it can feel like a brick wall. You start pulling... Okay, if you pull this out, then, then that feels shaky. If you pull one out down at the bottom of the wall, maybe it might fall down... When, when we have a shaky faith foundation or we have faith questions, what we're dealing with is the framework on which we build our lives. And so it's really hard. It's really scary. We don't know which pieces of what we've been given we need to keep and which pieces we need to let go of. And unfortunately, it usually happens in the midst of crisis. Something we've been told forever does not hold up. I was told, for example, uh, I hear this a lot, I was told... That if I pray for somebody, they'll be healed. And then they died. And so now, now we're dealing with two losses, right? The loss of the person and the loss of the framework that held, held, gave some meaning to life. And so this is why it's so hard, because you, you're dealing with very tough things and sometimes at the same time. And then people jump in and give you the same answers, only they, you know, they, they, they come at the, the wrong time, at the funeral home, or in the moment where you're, you're feeling you know, kind, of, kind of like in crisis. What people often do when we're kind of uneasy is they feel uneasy, and they want to, to, to make that go away. And so usually their answer is to make them feel better, and they tell us awful things sometimes. Sometimes not helpful things. Sometimes things that we 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 no longer know or whether are true or not. And so uh, that theological uh, thing is real. So that being said, a, a, an important work of the church is to create space just to work through that, to not have to force an answer, to not feel to, to create a non-anxious space where people can ask tough questions, and not come to the easy answer. Not force an answer, and not to shortcut the process, we can trust that God's at work in that. We can trust that the Holy Spirit will guide us, and that is true of individual faith issues, but also of our life, in our life together. Another question that comes up, another category of faith crisis is what I would call institutional, a distrust of faith institutions, because they failed us or they seem irrelevant. The church has been a place where abuse has happened, and a lot of folks don't know what to do with that, and that's, that's right. That's a right response. The church has not always been able to engage in uh, redemptive ways in the world, and especially young adults are calling in that into question. It can, it'd be easy to overstate what's going on with uh, the 18 to 35-year-old generation, but let me tell you that this is, this is some of it that we've got we've to think about Um, what the institution of the church has to say to people who are are just not coming. You know, it used to be that you would be raised in the church and then maybe disconnect for a while, go to college, do your thing, whatever, and then come back. And that still happens some, but it doesn't happen at the rate that it used to. In fact, uh, Barna Research Group estimates that 3,500 people leave the church every day. And that amounts to 1.2 million people a year. And a good number of them are young adults who are leaving the church. Who These are our children we've raised in the church, and they're not coming back. Of all the things that I feel like people ought to be, like, ringing a bell about and coming to my office about and asking questions about, that would probably be it for me. And what ends up happening is that gets lost in the mix of trying to deal with their questions, meaning they're asking questions that, that, that the church needs to wrestle with. And um, so... Barna Research Group has done some work on this. You can go buy the report for $19, you can look this up yourself, you can see the summary online. Um, this is uh, of, of 15,000 young adults between the age of 13, 18 and 35 uh, in 25 countries, uh, called the connected generation. And this is one of the things it says, the connected generation is looking for the church to provide real, tangible, meaningful opportunities for development. They want the church to be a laboratory of leadership. They want their faith to intersect the realities of life as budding Christian leaders. They want to address real-life issues. One uh, participant says this, the Christian faith paints a radical picture of how God intended the world to be. Salvation is not just about life after death. It is not solely for the individual. God's big story is about the complete restoration of the whole creation and reconciliation with God through Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection. And if it's not about that, I think rightly so, people are saying, why not? This is what the the report says. When millennials who believe in this truth, the ten churches where the focus is parochial, small, and individualistic, is dominated by judgment rather than love, or when church leaders speak of who is in and out rather than speak out against injustice and oppression of people made in the image of God, they walk away. I confess, sometimes I get caught between these two truths, that we need to talk about things, and when we do, it kind of stirs up stuff. I've sat across the table from many folks who I've said, please don't go. Please don't leave. And I knew when we talked about it, it would mean that, that somebody probably would. This is why churches don't talk about things. And this is why nothing changes. And so we're, kind of, we're stuck there. We're going to have to figure out, are we going to be a church that talks about things and works through some institutional stuff or not? And I think we've got to say, we have to. Not just because of young people who are leaving the church, but because it's the right thing. Maybe they're right. If the world isn't changing, and we're OK with that, that's our work to do. Third thing. This is maybe the, the, the hardest to pin down, but it's personal. Our faith crisis is personal. What we need is a personal connection to God and a personal connection to each other. And without that, it's just not going to work. There's no way to do faith restoration from a distance. And this is really why I love the story of the, the miraculous catch at the end of John's gospel. I love it because it's a fishing story. Did you catch how many fish that they caught that day? 153. Somebody counted, right? Because that's what you do, Right? Uh, But I like it also because it is a personal story about the restoration of people who are going through the very crises that I've mentioned. The the disciples have lost everything. This is the the third post-resurrection experience. It's tying up the Gospel of John. And Jesus appears to the disciples who have gone back to fishing, gone back to what they know. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But we can imagine what their crisis has been. It has been theological, and it's been institutional, and it's been personal. And guess what? We're going to maybe not to give this away, but the restoration is of all those things back. Uh, the, The theological questions that have come with the loss of their friend, their life experience is that it didn't turn out like they thought it would, and they've lost their framework, and they don't know what to do about it. It's institutional, because their religious institution and their political institution have gone together now to crucify Jesus. What do they have but the loss of those institutional foundations? And it's personal. They've lost their friend. And it's personal because they don't know what to do now. So they go back to fishing. Uh, By the way, John names them, which gets to how personal this is. John wants us to know who it is, Simon Peter who um, is going to be the leader of the church uh, as we know but uh, it could have been easy maybe just not to tell this part of the story the part where Peter almost quits It's kinda interesting this is a faith restoration story Thomas who doubts some of us find ourselves in that category and yet he's there Nathaniel who we only hear about twice in the Gospel of John at the beginning at the end at the beginning Jesus says oh you think that's impressive wait till you see what's next and then here we are at the end Uh, of the gospel, seeing what is next. James and John and two others are fishing. Scholars have different schools of thought about why they were doing that. Did they lose their faith completely? Were they just aimless and trying to find their way? Or is it very practical? You got to eat. You ever think of it that way? Like in the midst of all this, they still have to go and make a living. They still have to find food for their families. You got to eat. And so they're fishing, and Jesus appears to them. And that word John uses is an important word. It tells us, it gives us a clue about what kind of story. That appearing is a special word. It means that this is not only a miracle story, but it's a revelation story. Jesus is going to show us who he is. And so he's on the shore. He calls out to Peter, how's the fishing? Not good. Been fishing all night. Jesus says, throw your net out on the right side of the boat. You know, sometimes I've wondered if there was a little bit in Peter, like, "Oh my gosh, what does he know?" But here's what I think, and kind of having worked through the story this week, I think Peter's like, "Whatever." <laughs> like, <laughs> what do I have to lose at this point? Just that. In in recovery language, we call it uh, admitting that we're powerless. Just whatever. And in that sense of maybe it can't hurt because I've tried everything else we find a story of abundance. John mentions it four times. It's a lot of fish. No, like, like a lot of fish. Like 153 fish. Like, it should have torn the nets, but it, it, it didn't. And that struck something in me because it's not the first time John tells a story about a miracle that is about abundance. In fact, this is the last miracle. Let's think about the first miracle in John's Gospel. Do you know what it is? It's a story of A wedding banquet, and a story of them running out of wine, and them coming to Jesus, and Jesus like, I don't know, it's really my time, here we go, water, wine, not just any wine, but the good stuff, abundance. It happens in the middle of the gospel, when they feed the 5,000, right, with a little boy's lunch. I remember telling the story at Vacation Bible School 25 years ago, and the way the the story told it, it was um, five barley loaves and two fish, and so we said, what's this story about tonight? And this little boy raises his hand and he says, I know, it's about how Jesus used five garlic breads and two fish nuggets to feed a whole bunch of people. (laughs) Not that wrong, because the abundance part is really what the story is about, and then here... 153 fish and so I I got to thinking why a story of abundance a miracle of abundance a revelation story about abundance here you got these two things going on you got Peter and the disciples thinking that they've lost pretty much everything and that they have no options and that's what faith restoration feels like it feels like you're at the end of the rope It feels like there's nothing left to do. It feels like you've had your chance and it's played out. It feels like everything has kind of come down and there's nothing that can be built up. And you kind of, in a way, have to get there. And I don't know why. I think it's mysterious a bit. There is something to getting there where you just say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to throw it on the other side of the boat because whatever. And then abundance. It's not that there is a way forward. It's not that there's two way for, ways forward. It's not that there are a few options. No, it's 153. God's way has infinite possibility and it doesn't feel like that. It's just the weirdest dynamic of our humanness. We get to the point where we are at the end of our rope and that's kind of the start. Of whatever is next. I also love this story. Oh, by the way, let me tell you how John finishes up the gospel, speaking of abundance, speaking of infinite possibility. This is the summary statement of the entire gospel, John 21, 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. How about we get into that kind of story, huh? How about we find a vision forward that is about that kind of possibility it gets to that place i think for all of us where we wonder if there's any way forward and then jesus makes the way john looks at peter and says it's the lord lots of fish it's got to be Jesus. Peter, very human thing, puts on all his clothes back and then jumps in the water, which is the best, like, the best part of the story. It's each of them being themselves. Their personalities shine through. What does that say about what kind of story this is? It, we're still going to be ourselves, and God's going to use that and restore it. And then they get to the shore, and the big restoration moment happens. My, kind of my favorite part, except for the 153 fish. My favorite part. Where does it happen? At breakfast. This is a story of a God who finds us and sits down at a meal with us, looks us in the eye, makes it personal. And there's no other way it can happen. It's either that or it's nothing. But it's the way it happens, and it's wonderful. The other night when uh, Dr. Daniels was here, he was talking about kids who grew up in poverty. And he said, you know, one of the things that they don't get is they they don't get people who will look them in the eye. And that something changes in a child's brain when an adult looks them in the eye. Do you think it's possible that it's not just children? (laughs) Right? I have had a lot of conversations that have centered around how we we want to be a part of God's restoring work but somehow want to avoid doing this step Like, tell me what the answer is to this social question and then I'll tell you whether I will engage and I'm here to tell you that's not the story that we are a part of, we can't be, it doesn't work we can't shortcut the process, we can't be in charge of the end if we won't take the step in the beginning and that is what God has done for us, looked us in the eye so that we know who we are. And without it, the rest is impossible. But this is what Jesus does for Peter. He looks him in the eye, and three times Peter has denied Jesus, and now three times Jesus restores him. It takes longer than you think. It takes more than you, than you maybe thought. And that restoration is back to, well, who Peter was called to be before all of it all kind of broke loose and all hit the fan it's a restoration that is theological of a God who forgives a God who restores a God who doesn't give up on you it is a restoration that is institutional it's not like Jesus said well Peter you were the rock and on you I'll build the church except now that you've messed up no it's it is a renewal of the church and out of this moment then the church finds its footing and becomes the greatest social movement on the face of the planet. And it's personal as Jesus looks him in the eye. And you remember, maybe as you think about that sense of purpose, uh, you might remember where Jesus finds Peter the first time. What's he doing? He's fishing, right? And Jesus calls to him and says, come follow me and 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 what and i will make you fish for people could it be that those 153 fish really aren't about just about fish that that he's he's telling peter hey you've got a purpose and it's to fish for people that clues there at the end of the gospel the end of well actually the end of this story jesus says to peter again those same words come follow me There's no way through this without finding your purpose in life. But when we do, then that's why we're here. And that's what restoration is about. In this series, we're telling stories of our people. And so today, I want to ask you to be willing to take the risk with us to get into the messiness of this, to look people in the eye, to listen to their stories, and then figure out how to move forward together. It involves engagement with real people, not hypothetical issues people who have names and who are part of our life together and we can trust God's work in that process. Today as, a, as we tell that story I want to, you to hear the story of Carla LaFontaine. It is a story that will encourage us, maybe, maybe challenge some of us, maybe stretch some of us and give us a vision of faith being restored. Let's watch together.
1: I am Carla LaFontaine and I've been here at Broadway since the fall of 2019 Um, and I love it. (laughs) I found my place in my community. I grew up in the church always. Um, I grew up in a very conservative religion. I grew up Pentecostal. My dad was a pastor my entire life and so I didn't I grew up knowing nothing else except church and being told this is what you're going to do and my parents told me from an early age like you're going to be in ministry, you're going to be in ministry, like you've got something big to do. And, and so that was like, woo, that's awesome. But also I always felt like a lot of pressure for me. Um, I come from a long line of pastors. My sisters married pastors, my dad, my grandfather. But then I started to notice that I am a little different from them in lots of ways uh, around high school and, and becoming a young adult. And I realized that theologically, I'm very different from my family. I've always been that kid that asked the, like, but why questions? Um, You tell me these things about the Bible and about God, and about Jesus. I mean, yeah, but why? Like, there's gotta be a why to this. Um, I also started figuring out that I just was a different person. Um, And so I really dealt with my sexuality, but was told that, I mean, point blank, it would send me to hell to be gay. And so that was a struggle that I had from, I mean, probably the middle of high school. And knowing that, I, I tried to deal with it so many ways. Um, I definitely had suicidal moments in high school. I had plans. Um, and so that was always a struggle that I swept under the rug, swept under the rug. Um, I went to college and all of this time, you know, it's in my head like I'm supposed to be a minister. I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to be a minister. That's my calling. That's what I've been told since birth. And so I did a lot of work and I did a lot of digging in the Bible. I did a lot of therapy. I probably spent more time in the Bible in that period of my life than I ever had before. And so it has given me this new respect for the Bible. It's given me, it's holy to me and holier than it ever has been before. Everybody wants to be a part of something. Everyone should have a place to be a part of a community, especially in the church. It needs to be talked about. There needs to be a place to talk about it. And it's one of the reasons I'm here. I was away from the church for almost two years and i found myself here in an office having a conversation literally looked at my friend and said if this conversation doesn't go well it will be detrimental to my faith i don't know if i could ever go back to a church and here i am (laughs) the conversation went okay um but it matters that we had it you know and i've had that conversation with you know so many people here now and I want to have that conversation with everyone, anyone who wants to know. And for me, it wasn't like God is doing this to me or Jesus is doing this to me. It was always like people are getting this wrong, and they're hurting other people. It was never about Jesus. It was never about God. That's res- it's restored so many things in me. Um, and the, you know, the church has become this church specifically has become a place that has loved me for who i am and i didn't even love myself for who i was before you know it's hard to find that for yourself or for anyone else when you kind of hate a part of who you are you know and um i don't hate that part of me anymore i i really truly love myself But I found this community that does that here. And it's it's a powerful thing to be able to be yourself and someone else fully love you for that. It's powerful. And I always knew Jesus did. I always knew God loved me. But I wasn't always sure the church could or that ministers could. And, um, And I've learned that it's possible. These people are who they they say they are, and they are who we think they are. That's the kind of place I want to create. That's the kind of place I want to be part of. That's the kind of church I can get behind. We need a church full of people who can live up to the full abilities of what God's given them. What, What are your gifts? What do you want to do? How do you want to love on people? Awesome let's
0: do that sitting back down for just a second you know uh, for about five years we've wondered if this was the one thing that means we can't put it back together together and uh, whether we could agree on things or not and I'm going to tell you this is not the one thing that means we can't move forward that there's I'm just going to just remind you of the image that there's a path forward together. There's a path forward by God's grace. and doesn't mean we will end up all agreeing about how to do that. But we can trust that God will work in the process and and, 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 and that it is a story of God's abundance. And that's hope not just for one group of people, but for all people. It applies to all of us. There isn't just a way forward through this world and its challenges and its stickiest ones. There is a way forward of God's goodness and God's abundance. And that's been my experience having uh, walked a very tough path through this with a lot of folks. God has been good. And that abundance leads to great things in the future. And I want to invite you to be a part of that. We're going to celebrate, in a sense, today as we close that God is the waymaker, that God's the one who makes that path, and that we can trust it, and it is a path of faith being restored. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would meet us here in our own questions and wrestlings. We pray that you would meet... Meet us in the opportunities and sense of purpose that you've given us. And we bring all of our faith questions, all of our institutional questions, all of our personal questions, and we lay them before you. And in this moment, perhaps at the very end of our rope for some of us, say, yeah, I'll throw the net on the right side and give it one more chance. God, we trust that this is a story of you meeting us and looking us in the eye. And we pray that for every single one of your children, for all of us gathered, and for those who haven't. We pray that possibility for our world, that faith in you might be restored and that we might come fully alive out of that relationship with you and one another.